Good evening. Thank you, Mike, for that ministry and music. <clears throat> I hope that you saw that there were handouts tonight uh, back on that table as you entered the narthex. We will be using handouts for the book of Ecclesiastes. So each Sunday night that uh, we are preaching from Ecclesiastes, you can avail yourself of a handout uh, that will be back in the narthex. It's been a period of time since we had a hiatus. I just had begun Ecclesiastes when we were no longer having evening services, so I decided to go back and start over. Uh, so tonight's a review. I apologize to those of you who have a great memory, and all of this is right there for you, uh, but uh, some of us a review can be helpful. Uh, so we're starting with uh, a review tonight to the introductory materials for the book of Ecclesiastes. So introduction, the title. The title Ecclesiastes is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew title, which means preacher. It is the same word that is found in verse 1, the word of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, some translations, uh, modern translations, might read uh, the son of Coleth. Uh, Coleth is uh, just, again, a transliteration, but uh, the word means preacher. Literally, it means one who speaks to a congregation or gathered assembly. Solomon, at times, would fulfill that role. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 54, we read, Now is Solomon finished offering... All this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven, and he stood and blessed all the people of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel. According to all that he promised, not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. So there were times in which Solomon would actually preach or deliver a message to the people of Israel. <clears throat> the author, uh, I believe, is Solomon. And uh, I have a quote here from the SV Study Bible. Strictly speaking, then, the book is anonymous, given that no personal name is attached to it. Nevertheless, traditional Jewish and Christian scholarship has often ascribed authorship to Solomon. So there's no place where it specifically says that Solomon wrote it, but we're going to see that the, uh, there's vast support for believing that he did. However, <clears throat> I now have a quote from Temporal Algerman. The predominant opinion of the past is that Ecclesiastes is an old and repentant Solomon looks back over his life particularly the period after his apostasy from the Lord, which is recorded in 1 Kings chapters 11.1 to 13.3. Today, it is widely held that the book of Solomon was written later by someone other than Solomon. The primary reason for that is because of the difficulty of the Hebrew. Uh, the the distinctive nature of the Hebrew language used in the book is widely believed to be 
indicative of a date much later than the 10th century BC. Again, the ESV Study Bible. Now I have a, a lengthy quote from Walter Kaiser, who is going to refute that position, uh, that uh, this is written later, uh, that uh, the Hebrew demands us to understand that this book was written in the 10th century BC. I quote, a single argument left in favor of a post or a non-Solomonic origin for Ecclesiastes is the character of its language. In other words, sometimes other arguments are made, but they're extremely weak. The only one that bears any weight is this idea of the Hebrew and its intricacy. On this basis, even such conservative scholars as Hengstenberg, Dalich, Leupold, and E.J. Young felt compelled to date the book in the 5th century B.C., and others placed it in the Greek period from the 3rd century B.C. to the time of Herod the Great. Continuing on, quoting from another place, Here again, however, the linguistic evidence does not support the conclusion reached. There is, first of all, the matter of the complete absence of any Hebrew consonants used as vowels or helping letters, which absence points to an exceedingly early composition of the book. Final vowel letters, matris lectonis, first appeared in the late 8th century BC, and medial or middle vowel letters came into vogue at the end of the 7th or early 6th century BC, all of which are missing here. Now, I know that that doesn't make much sense to you, but basically what it is saying is that after the time of the exile, all right, the children of Israel went into exile, carried away into Babylon, uh, the result was because of their exile uh, and other issues, the Hebrew language passed out of vogue. Many were no longer teaching their children to read or speak Hebrew. Well, that created a certain problem when they got back to the uh, promised land and uh, they got involved in the scriptures once again, uh, because they didn't read Hebrew, and Hebrew without vowel points is extremely difficult to read, so they added vowel letters, vowel points, so that it became easier to read. Translating that into something that we can compare to, think of way sometimes you'll see words that are written phonetically. They're written phonetically so you know how to pronounce them, right? That's what happened to Hebrew. They added vowel letters, they added vowel pointing, so that it became easier for people to understand how to pronounce these Hebrew words that they're no longer associated with. The point is, there's none of that in the Hebrew in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes, which says that it was written before the exile, not after the exile. Moving on. Furthermore, Many of the sometimes called 29 alleged Aramaisms, which normally occur from the 5th century BC down to 200 BC, are actually of Canaanite Phoenician vintage, according to Mitchell Dahud, uh, and therefore of much earlier usage. In fact, 
it is almost impossible to avoid the conviction that Ecclesiastes is of such a unique and special genre that it currently fits into no known period of the history of the Hebrew language. Anchor and Dahud both repeat Jastro and Margulus, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, judgment that it is impossible to explain the peculiarities of coalesce grammar, syntax, and orthography on the basis that is late Mishanic Hebrew or late Aramaic. That's from Walter Kaiser, all that material. In other words, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. You try to analyze the Hebrew in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and it doesn't really fit into any other era of the Hebrew language. It is unique in its grammar, it's unique in its syntax, it's unique in its uh, vocabulary. So here's my take, to which I would reply that we should not be surprised that the wisest man who ever lived would use language that was very uncommon, difficult, and utilizes idioms that came from other nations. All right? To me, that is just one more attestation that this fits with Solomon. All right? Nobody else at the time could have written anything of this intricacy other than Solomon. <clears throat> Three, while Solomon is not mentioned by name in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's the only one who fits the biographical allusions. So now we're going to look at evidence within the confines of the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to look at the content of the book of Ecclesiastes and see how it not only fits with Solomon, but it actually requires <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but actually requires the fact that Solomon wrote it. Let me just, an aside here for a moment. The, the scriptures are coming under a great attack in our particular era in which we live. That's not totally unique to our era. It's been happening since the 1800s, that the scriptures are coming under attack, but I would say in a more fierce way than, than ever. And uh, what I want to say to you is we don't need to, to run away from scholarship. We don't have to bury our heads in the sand and, uh, or throw up our hands and say, well, what do we do with all this? We, we have to just take this, quote unquote, by faith. This morning, I talked about the importance of having an eye of faith. If you don't have an eye of faith, things can look quite different. But when I talk about having an eye of faith, I'm not talking about being stupid or being ignorant. We're not saying that you've got to be stupid to believe the Bible. You've just got to pretend that all of these issues don't exist, etc., etc., etc. I'm not saying that at all. Scholarship is valuable. Scholarship is useful, but it always has to be submitted to and under the umbrella of the scriptures. The scriptures are authoritative. And all I'm saying to you tonight is the basis of our understanding needs to come from the text itself, and the text will explain many of the issues that people raise. So, moving on. A, the writer is referred to as the son of David, Ecclesiastes 
the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. It should be noted that the word son in Hebrew could have the simple meaning of descendant and not necessarily mean the immediate son. So in Hebrew, a son can be a son, it can be a grandson, it can be a great-grandson. It doesn't say anything specific. It says that they're a descendant. Having said that, the word son can also mean a literal son as we think of it, first generation. B. Here's the most significant aspect for our understanding of dating the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1.12. The preacher had been king over Israel and Jerusalem. King over Israel and Jerusalem. Now, why is that important for dating? Well, after Solomon, the kingdom was divided. Remember, under Solomon's son, the kingdom was divided into Israel, into Judah, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. All right? A, the southern kingdom, Judah, had a capital in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom, Israel, had a capital first in Shechem, then in Tirzah, and finally in Samaria. So 1 Kings 16.23. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel. And he reigned for 12 years, 6 years, he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Thus, because it says that the writer is king in Jerusalem of Israel, thus the book was written by the king of Israel before the kingdom was divided. Following the drift, Israel, once the kingdom is divided, is not in Jerusalem. The capital of Judah is Jerusalem. It's not the capital of Israel. So the capital, Jerusalem, has to refer to Israel before the kingdom is divided. The kingdom is divided the first generation after Solomon. Therefore, it has to be Solomon or earlier than Solomon. It can't be later than Solomon because the kingdom is divided right after Solomon. But it can't be earlier than Solomon because it refers to him as a son of David or a descendant of David. Solomon immediately follows David. So it can't be anybody earlier than Solomon, and it can't be anybody later than Solomon. So if you have it that it can't be earlier than Solomon, and it can't be later than Solomon, then guess what? It's Solomon. It's Solomon. So I submit to you the text is pretty clear. Beyond that, the depiction of the writer fits Solomon. First, we have the depiction of his wisdom, Ecclesiastes 1.16. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom 
and knowledge. This fits with the description of Solomon in 1 Kings 3.12. Behold, this is God speaking, I now do according to your word. Uh, Solomon had asked for wisdom. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. So he says, I have surpassed the wisdom of all who were before me. The scripture says that there was nobody wiser than Solomon before Solomon. There is nobody wiser than Solomon after Solomon. So again, it fits with Solomon. Number two, the depiction of his great wealth can only be applicable to Solomon. Ecclesiastes 2, 8 and 9. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. 1 Kings 10, 16 following describes the wealth of Solomon. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Then the king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there each on each end of a step on the six steps, the like of which was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was considered nothing in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. And it goes on and on and on. So uh, the riches that are depicted in the book of Ecclesiastes are consistent with the riches that are described of Solomon. Thirdly, the depiction of his teaching many proverbs. Again, it's consistent with Solomon. Ecclesiastes 12.9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. According to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, referring to Solomon, he also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. Again, consistent with Solomon as the author. Which brings us to number four. The book of Ecclesiastes is a dramatic autobiography of the king's life and experiences when in a backsliding state. He sought meaning and pleasure apart 
from God. Ecclesiastes 2.10 And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And all this was my reward for all my toil. Number five, the musings of a man that apparently had all that a person could want only to find that he was not satisfied with all that he obtained or fulfilled by all that he had done. So, overview. The book of Ecclesiastes is a collection of remarks by the preacher. Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the preacher. The theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is that life is meaningless apart from God. Ecclesiastes 1.2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Or meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Literally, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. So the five-fold repetition of the word vanity shows the intensity or emphasis of the thought. In other words, it can't be stressed enough. All is vanity. He says it again and again. <laughs> vanity, vanity, all is vanity. The re- words of the preacher. All is vanity. So you get the idea. It's vanity. Number four. The Hebrew word hebel, translated vanity, can mean breath, vapor, fleeting, not enduring, or having no lasting value or worth. For example, Psalm 39, verse 5. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath, hebel. Man is like a breath, hebel. His days are like a fleeting shadow, the brevity of life, a breath. Think on a nice, crisp, frosty morning. And you go out and you breathe. What do you see? Your breath, right? That moment that that vapor comes out of your mouth. How long does that last? How long does that hang in the air? It's gone. It's gone. As soon as you breathe it out, you see it, and it's gone. That's the way life is. To say that it is short is an understatement. It's more than short. It's like a breath. You see one moment, and it's gone the next. Number five. The proposition in the book of Ecclesiastes comes in the form of a question. What is the benefit in all of mankind's striving? Ecclesiastes 1.3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? At the end of the day, what is the point What is the point of life? What is the point of all our work? What's the point of all our energy? What's the point of everything that we spend all our money and time on? In the end, what does it mean? So A, when all is said and done, what difference does our life really make? What is the lasting effect in the brief time that we're here on earth. 
What will it have meant that you and I had been here? Think five generations from now. What's it going to mean? What's been our purpose? What's our legacy? What will we have achieved? What will we have left behind? The key phrases in the book of Ecclesiastes. Now this is extremely, extremely important. Vanity of vanities, all his vanity occurs 37 times. It refers to life's lack of meaning or purpose. Under the sun is used 27 times in the book. It is referring to an earthly perspective apart from God. So it keeps talking about life under the sun, 27 times. See, under heaven is used three times in the book. It's referring to viewing life from a godly perspective. So you can see there's 27 references under the sun. There's only three references to under the heaven, which demonstrate, first of all, that the majority of the book of Ecclesiastes is looking at life from a human perspective without taking God into account. That's why it's saying vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Because it's looking at life from a human perspective, leaving God out of the picture. There are three sections that deal with life from a heavenly perspective, from a view that takes God into consideration. And then life looks a lot different. So one of the things that you will quickly see as you read through Ecclesiastes, and I know many of you have read the book numerous times, you will see a lot of contradictory statements in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the reason for the contradictory statements is because one is looking at life from a perspective in which God is not in the picture. Then it comes back and looks at the same thing with God in the picture. And so the conclusions are the exact opposite of each other. Life looks entirely different when you consider God from when you don't consider God. So it's very helpful to keep that in mind as you deal with these contradictory statements that are going to abound in the book of Ecclesiastes. Conclusion. Apart from God, life has no meaning or purpose. Solomon's search for happiness and meaning in life ends in finding purpose in God. Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Application. The value of the book of Ecclesiastes is the considerations of experiences and thoughts that to a greater or lesser degree we all wrestle with because we are constantly bombarded 
with a worldview that is quite contrary to the scriptures. We're surrounded by people who do not run their life through a sieve of belief in the scriptures and in the person of God. So it helps us to understand the significance of that other worldview. B, the value of the book of Ecclesiastes is dependent upon our ability to learn from the mistakes and insights of others. Uh, to listen to Solomon, to evaluate Solomon's life, see where this thinking led, see what his downfall was, and learn from it, and hopefully not follow the same downward trajectory. See, the value of the book of Ecclesiastes is to see where our thoughts left unchecked may lead. D, the value of the book of Ecclesiastes is in helping us to identify the source of frustrations with various aspects of life. Okay, why am I getting so frustrated? Why does this bother me? Why do I feel like I'm on a treadmill, that I'm just going around in circles? Ecclesiastes helps us to understand where that thinking comes from and why that thinking is so destructive. To me, it's the most practical book in all of the scriptures. E, the value of the book of Ecclesiastes is in providing us with a different perspective in the viewing of frustrations. And then lastly, the value of the book of Ecclesiastes is in understanding the repetitive nature of life. How it seems like life just goes on and on with no changes, no differences from one generation to the next. Ecclesiastes is filled with wisdom regarding that. <clears throat> Takeaways, two of them. First, <coughs> first, and which I think is extremely important, is wisdom and or knowledge alone is no guarantee of spiritual faithfulness. One must guard one's heart. Can't say that enough. Can't emphasize that enough. Because I think there's a tendency for people to think that knowledge alone does guard the heart. All I need to do is read my Bible. All I need to know is what God's Word says. So many times, in counseling situations... I'll have people that say, Pastor, could you talk to my brother, sister, son, aunt, neighbor? Could you talk to them and just tell them why they shouldn't be doing what they should be doing? It's not about knowledge. Rarely is it that people don't understand or know that they shouldn't be doing what they're doing. It's not like, oh, I never heard that adultery was bad. Thanks for telling me that. I'll, I'll knock that off. Uh, it, it's not a matter of what we know. 
It's a matter of our hearts. And our hearts deceptiveness so that we actually deny what we know. The old, we know better. We know that that's not the way of happiness. We know that that doesn't turn out right. And yet we do it anyway. Because it's not about up here, it's about what's in here. It's a significant statement that I read earlier when Solomon says, I gave my heart to pursue mirth. Uh, forgive me, and one of the things I'm wrestling with is what, what, I, what translation I want to use for these handouts, because I've memorized a good portion of Ecclesiastes. And so if I am talking off the top of my head, I'm going uh, uh, to be quoting King James, because I still memorize in King James. So uh, I'm going to be back and forth and kind of like to do the handout in King James, but also realize it's hard, that's harder for people to understand. So I'll probably keep with the ESV, but bear with me, because I'm going to be quoting from the, uh, the King James. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, Solomon says, I gave my heart, I gave my heart to pursue mirth, joy. And then it goes on to talk about all the difficulties that, that came. Guarding our hearts, guarding our affections. You know, one of the downfalls of Solomon were the foreign wives that he married. And they drew his heart, the scripture says, away from God. And he built false temples for them. Solomon, of course, is known for building the temple to God, but it's not the only temple he built. In fact, he built many temples. One to God, many to false gods in order to please his wives and to give them a place for worship. His heart was drawn away. And he says, and yet I retain my wisdom. He didn't become an idiot. He didn't forget everything he knew. He just put it on the back burner. Just put it on the back burner. Because his heart was pursuing joy and mirth and delight and sensuality. And he thought that that was going to bring him pleasure. And it didn't. So one huge takeaway from Ecclesiastes is that knowledge alone won't preserve us. We need to guard our hearts. And B... There is much in life that can easily distract us from keeping God clearly in view. Or to put it another way, there is much in life that can draw our hearts away. And we can begin to long after other things and find pleasure in other things than in God. And it is destructive 
It brings misery. It brings heartache. And Ecclesiastes says it beautifully. And it's typified in the life of Solomon. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray that as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, that it won't just be an academic exercise in which we think about these texts and dissect them and try to understand them and we get to the place where we have a better grasp of what they're saying. Lord, may that never be the end. May that not be the ultimate goal. May we not be satisfied when we understand your word. May we only be satisfied when we are submissive and obedient to that word. When we learn to love that word. That we can say with the psalmist, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, and sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Lord, may your word be our delight. May our obedience to you be our joy. May we come to the same conclusion that Solomon comes to at the end of his life when he says, what is the conclusion of the matter? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Lord, help us to guard our hearts in seeking to be obedient to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.